Welcome to Diversity Rocks Innovation Volume 12. My name is Jackie Steele. I'm the CEO and founder of Enjoy Diversity and Innovation and a Canadian political scientist living and teaching in Japan for many, many years. Enjoy is a Japan-based global-facing company working in English, Japanese, and sometimes in French. And we support leaders and corporations in building out a diversity positive workplace and corporate culture and ecosystem. We believe, and I think most of us here on the call and also those listening in also know and believe that diversity really rocks innovation. And we are interested in building out inclusive innovation that amplifies and supports equality and that powers our people systems for personal and collective good and that being for the long game, which means it has to be sustainable. This live stream is shining a spotlight on the beautiful diversity of Enjoy Thought Partners who are bringing the change in favor of inclusive, diversity positive, gender equal and sustainable leadership in Japan and around the world. And each week I invite one of my collaborators, Thought Partners, who I learn from tremendously uh, in life and in business, and we just show up as two human beings with no business cards, uh, no senpai kohai or you know hierarchies based on gender or race or nationality or age or any of the other things that can come in and interrupt our ability to just cross pollinate our lives and our identities and our zones of genius to really move the dial. So we are excited and I am very excited to uh, welcome today a really awesome friend a business mentor, someone who has really supported me in so many ways along my new journey as a CEO here in Japan, uh, a wonderful thought partner. I am pleased to welcome Tova Kinooka. She is the co-founder and director of Global Perspectives. And uh, we met, uh, I want to say three or four years ago through a WIM conference uh, that was held at IBM and that was really, you know, shining a light on women's leadership. And then we met again at the Deep in the Dialogue event at IBM, and then we've met through Few Japan at many occasions, and then we've had so many wonderful family get-togethers uh, and learned uh, about each other both in a more deep and personal sense as well through those collaborations at the family level. And I'm so excited, Toma, to finally welcome you. Welcome to Diversity Rocks Innovation Volume 17. Wow, what an intro. <laughs> Thank you, Jackie. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to to be here today and to to watch you and the enjoy journey. Um, and you know, it's it's a real privilege to watch that kind of unfolding um, as we speak. And this series, I think, is fantastic. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Well, you've been a big part of that journey in helping me figure these pieces out along the way, uh, failing forward into finding my my niche and my way as a CEO and, and as a new entrepreneur in Japan. So uh, thank you indefinitely for all of that support <laughs> that I have uh, really called on you in various ways. And, and really, you've offered, um, I think, the kind of, you know, person to person support that how do you do this? And how do you do that? And well, what did you do when you were setting up? And, and just those behind the scenes things that, you know, unless you have somebody who's willing to open their books and say, well, this is how I do it, or this is how I think of my, you know, business model. Well, this is how it failed. And <laughs> doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Until you have people really willing to share that. And I think it's, it's a, being vulnerable to say, this is how I've done it. And, and this is my way. There's other ways, but not everybody's willing to do that. So I was really, really grateful on so many occasions for the for the advice and the mentoring you gave me. But today we're going to dive into a little bit more of the backstory of who is Toba Kinooka. Um, and I would love, I mean, I obviously uh, think that you bring so many different 
interesting ideas and projects and diversity points from my perspective of what I see and what you're doing in your journey. Um, but for the listeners, maybe we can uh, roll back time and start with a deep dive into what, what your background is, where are you from, what was your upbringing, and when you think about sort of what are the core elements of who you are and, and what shaped you and the values that made or the identities that made you who you are today and what professional journey you're on. What, how do we go back and situate those original core elements and where did they start from? Wow. Okay. So that, that's going back into dim and distant past. But um, <laughs> so let me think where to start. I'm, as most people probably guess from the name, I, I sound British, but my name's not British, which always confuses people a bit. Um, so I was born and raised in the UK. My passport says I'm British but I'm also um, part Danish. My father's side of the family is from Denmark. Um, and so growing up in very, very rural um, Southeast England um, for the first half of my childhood and then very, very rural Northeast Scotland uh, for the second half of my childhood with a name like Tova um, was interesting, <laughs> interesting experience. Um, my surname, um, you know, growing up before I was married was Junker, spelt with a J, uh, which is actually German, which is even more confusing because the Danish side of the family originally, you know, there's German connections further back. Um, so it's, I've always felt slightly like kind of square peg in a round hole a little bit growing up because, you know, wh where I lived, um, it was beautiful, beautiful area, Southwest England. I mean, it's it's like... If you watch, um, what's the thing, Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit or something, you know, the Shire, all green and hilly and and stuff, that's what it looked like where I grew up. It's absolutely beautiful, but it's not very diverse um, in any sense of the word. Um, you know, these were farming communities. Um, both my parents were, were not farming originally. Um, my father's background is um, agricultural engineering, um, he wanted to be an architect, but he was told that there were too many out-of-work out of architects, so he went for engineering instead. Um, my mum's background was as a, a biology and PE teacher. Um, interesting combination. <laughs> and, um, so, but but we lived in you know in in the middle of nowhere outside a, a tiny tiny village, um, and it was a very rural community. So, growing up. Um, you know, I have sister and brother, both younger. We we spent all our time, you know, playing in the woods, scrabbling around in the mud. Um, either I was either on a horse or pretending to be a horse most of my time. Um, <laughs> and so that it was kind of very idyllic in many ways. Um, very, very fortunate to, to have that space and that natural beauty around. Um, but I was always conscious of the fact that, you know, I whenever I'm out with friends or other people, I'm a little bit different because, you know, I'm not called Emma or Kate or any of those lovely English names. I'm this, this funny Tove, Tove, Tovey. How do you even say this? You know, people just couldn't quite get their heads around that. Um, and imagine, then right, this, 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 we, we sort of underestimate how a significant role names play in not only, of course, identity formation over the years, but also in terms of how people interpret and whether or not we are intelligible 
to them mm -hmm. and and in what frames are they interpreting us through and i think it's yeah i mean this is something that i discussed with with darren i guess also on the live stream with darren and he was talking about you know his backgrounds and his name and that there's a sometimes an assumption that you know we've simplified the diversity conversation to black white yellow indigenous but there's this whole diversity of whiteness yeah. and across you know eastern europe and western europe and we still within europe would disaggregate right that oh you're mm -hmm. you're british but your name is kind of what german or what danish or what what is how are you really then right so i think we've not really broken down and started thinking i think enough about the you know the complexity of britishness mm -hmm. and the complexity of whiteness across right. europe and across north america too yes and how our names signal that so clearly yeah, and it, it's interesting because it's something that, you know, I, as you know, I'm married to a Japanese man. And when we had children and we're thinking about names, this was something that we talked about a lot. You know, we, we wanted to reflect their cultural identity of sort of English, Danish, Japanese in their names, but have names that were not going to cause them hassle and difficulties through their life. Because, you know, I, I suppose now I can look at my name and think, okay, well, you know, Tova, Tova Junker, Tova Kinoka. I, I'm, I've made my peace with that now. And, and you know, living in a much more, or working, you know, in the last sort of 20 so or so years in a much more diverse uh, sort of context, I, I think it's easier with that. You know, people just go, oh, how do you say it? Okay, that's how you pronounce it. And on we go, it's not, not an issue. But when you're a child, dealing with that actually is really, it can be very, very challenging. You know, kids will unintentionally single somebody out who has a, a, a funny name. And, you know, the fact that no <clears throat> teachers could ever pronounce it. So in class, I had one teacher at secondary who taught me for probably four years, I think, straight and never, ever got my name right. Um, and it got to the point she'd be there, Toby, and the, the, the rest of the kids in the class would be like, it's Tova. And, you know, they all could say it. It's like, why can't you just say my name <laughs> It's, yeah. And it really impacts you, I think, as a as a kid. You know, why am I different? Why can nobody pronounce my name? So I think, yeah, we, we don't necessarily um see how much that impacts, I think. So I'm always really conscious when I meet new people trying to say their names correctly, yeah. you know, and, well, and checking this right. I mean, from a diversity, you know, equity and inclusion innovation conversation perspective, too, I really think. I mean, I, I know people don't like the the P word, but like power is a thing and interpersonal power is communicated in how we make the efforts to learn a person's name yeah. or not. Yeah. Whether we deem that, you know, I think there's a majority rule complacency factor mm -hmm. that, oh, well, if you're in Canada and it's English and French as the dominant two languages, then those are standardized and we know sort of how to read those. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe English is really the hegemonic. And so Anglophones in Canada can be pretty complacent and not making the effort. It's like, ah, uh, I'm the majority here. You know, can you make it easier for me to read your name? Can we like Anglicize that into something like a nickname that I could, can you help me out? Right. And I think there's, it's a power play, but it's not always understood mm. as a small P power play that is really, um, you know, make the effort to yeah. 
understand that each individual has the right to have their name yeah. recognized and, and pronounced the right way, right? That's, Absolutely. I think, just a step one of individual yeah. mutual respect. But I think we forget those entitlements that we carry when we're part of the majority language group. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it definitely carries over. And I mean, I think I agree that kids are you know, kids can be really mean, right? Like they just, it's like they single you, they single you out for whatever things they can. Yeah. And I, I remember being harassed when I was a little girl because at the time Jackie Robinson was like this big, really like famous ball, baseball, pro baseball player in the United States. Okay. And so this one little boy on the walk home to, from school, he would tease me incessantly that I had a boy's name. Uh, Why do you have a boy's name? I have a boy's name, and I'd be like, oh, I don't have a boy's name. It can be for a boy or for a girl. And then, of course, Jackie Kennedy, Jackie Onassis, Jackie Kennedy came along in the United States, and that changed and put Jackie back on the market. <laughs> it was a girl's name, and I was like, oh, see, see, you're giving a girl's name too. But like these things where people needle yeah. you every single day, and it's yeah. the repetition. It's the repetitious, you know, microaggression we call it now. Exactly. Um, it kind of away your self-confidence, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. And why can't, why can't I be seen for who I am? And why can't you just learn my name? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I used to so get so excited as a kid watching. Um, so the author of the, the Moomins, right, is also called Tova. And that's the, uh, she's Finnish, not Danish, but that's the only other Tova that I'd ever heard of. So as a kid watching the Moomins on TV, I'd wait till the credits came up at the end and it would see based on the book by Tova Janssen. And I was like, oh. There's another Tova in the world. I'm not the only one with this weird name. And it was it's really reassuring. Like you say, otherwise, you know, these constant, you know, even if they're not sort of malicious and intent, it's just yeah. constant um, you know, mispronunciation or, you know, why have you got a that's a funny name and that you can't yeah. possibly be British with that name and and this yeah. kind of uh sort of well. Goodness, it away. really prepared you for a life in Japan of being <laughs> constantly othered as a as a yes. as a foreigner, as a gaitokujin, right? Person from yeah. another country, you're a foreigner, yeah. you're an outsider. And we well, I had another that step on the way to that as well, because I mean, having grown up the first eleven years in in rural England, all right, at least I. I had the right accent there so I was okay but then when I was 11 my family my parents decided they wanted to go into farming full-time it'd been kind of we lived on a little sort of hobby farm I suppose you'd call it and when we were in Devon but we moved to Scotland and they sort of went all in on full um, farming so we moved at age 11 uh, well my age 11 to there and uh, all of a sudden we had the same passports but I had the wrong accent and so totally. oh, wow that was a whole new level of other. Um, so and you're the that, colonizer. You're the colonizing side of, of England. Yeah. Who's colonizing Scotland, right? <laughs> mm. so, yeah. so that, again, it was... A lot of like power <laughs> politics in that room in terms of, you know, the experience of colonization yeah. of Scotland yeah. and, and British-Scottish relations. Because at that yeah. point, you didn't have this thing, you know, the Scottish Parliament didn't have oh, devolution exactly. and robust powers to to legislate for itself and have more autonomy so right wow yeah a lot of resentment probably in those and it gets you know bubbles down to the children even though the children are oblivious to the politics but yeah. it bubbles down through their parents they they learn it yeah, yeah they learn very it. much so and I think for my sister and brother who were younger when we moved it wasn't such an issue they were still in primary school um I was just starting secondary school where mm. I think you know as sort of pre-teens teens you're beginning to to sort of 
state your opinions a little bit more and think about, you know, what you believe in and and where your alliances are and things. So I think, yeah, that that age was particularly difficult. And like you say, a lot of the the people who were making the negative comments, it's not that they had any negative experiences themselves, but that this is what they're hearing around them from the adults. Um, and that was transferred to then me, uh, you, you're a, you've got a weird name and B you've got an English accent. What are you doing here? Um, so yeah, that, that was difficult. That was a real shock. I think for me, I, I mean, it was so excited about the new school and the move and then to be slammed in the face with that. It was like, Whoa, okay. I was not expecting that at all. So I I think you had mentioned to me, I feel like there was maybe a bit of a, not only, um, you know, the, the British, you know, Scottish dynamic, but also kind of a class conflict in that you, there was an assumption or right. at the time there was a trend of wealthier English yeah. going out into the countryside and like recolonizing and buying out the beautiful yeah. farmland. And, and that, you know, maybe you were being mislabeled, your family yeah. being mis- misunderstood mm-hmm. in that dynamic when you, your parents were obviously wanting to build up and contribute to the region through this farm in a very holistic way. Yeah, yeah. So kind of lot, lots of things in, interconnecting. So it was a whole, a, a very unsettled time, I think, for me. And until I found, you know, after a couple of years, I, I found my my friend group at school that you know, it was a mix of Scottish and English, um, other outsiders like me, but often, but we were all actually, when I think of it, the kind of kids who maybe didn't fit the mainstream images there was all something which made us a little bit different from the mainstream and so we kind of banded together and became very close and, and we're still you know good friends now 30 whatever years later um but until that it, it was a very kind of unsettled time trying to sort of work out who who am I actually what is my identity I don't know anymore and that's yeah that's kind of unsettling it's hard enough being a teenager anyway but when you've got that thrown into the mix I think it's and you know everyone just wants to feel they belong and are liked and have a friend like anybody any adult any child I mean that's the kind of the unfortunate part of how we we let all of these dynamics interrupt the ability to to really build friendships mm-hmm. because if we could get outside of those you know stereotypes and prejudices about each other that we are making face value judgments based on your name and what you look like mm-hmm. um what your passport says how do you speak do you do you have an accent? Um, I kind of just wish we could get into the relationship building and have more of a possibility to move past all of that politics because it yeah. slows us down ultimately. It just, you know, it's like we're making a lot of really wrong assumptions about people and then you have to unlearn it first before you can then actually get to know them. Just right. Like, like a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, it really is. But so you've obviously then really had a couple of insider, outsider, insider, outsider dynamics. You understand what it's like to be a part of the majority in England, but still sort of an outsider with your name mm. being Danish or German origin sounding. Then as a minority in Scotland, but technically a part of the majority in English political power, I guess, hegemonic yeah. class. But within Scotland, you're still like one little child just trying to survive. Um, how did that lead to um you know what you ended up pursuing in terms of your studies and how did you end up in Japan wow okay so um in terms of studies I because sort of growing up in a a very rural area natural environment was 
you know, something that it was very much part of our everyday lives um, and animals as well. Um, so I went to uh, to study biology, biological science, um, and looking particularly at uh, immunology, but also um, uh, sort of ecosystems, uh, littoral mar marine ecosystems and so on. So um, that for me, I, I have always found that fascinating and how thing, how systems interact with each other and, and, you know, the impact that has. So that was a great subject to study. But then what I discovered through studying it was that actually, I, I'm not sure I want to work with this afterwards. Were all the jobs, you know, when you, you do a science degree like that, you can either come out and teach science or you can come out and go into further research or something involved with, you know, whether it's uh, medical research or you know sort of taking on a, a further degree and deepening your specialization and, and I didn't really want to go with any of those options so I was really kind of just at a, a loose end um, after university although I was determined for a while I, I wanted to be a professional horse rider I was going to be at the Olympics um, oh. that, that was going to be my thing so my parents agreed that, okay, you go to university, get the degree under your belt. So at least you have something to fall back on. Um, of course, I didn't think I needed that, but that was the deal. Um, so I went and then after university, I went for a while and uh, sort of to a, um, a former professional, well, she was professional, right? The former Olympic rider and sort of as her working pupil, which is kind of a euphemism for slave labor. Basically, they, you, you do shed loads of work and they don't really pay you they just give you accommodation and training um also sometimes called an apprenticeship <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's that's another way of looking at it um and I tried for a while but I I didn't um you know it was just not going to work out I had no money and I you know got to the realization that really if I wanted to be a professional horse rider I, I either needed to win the lottery or um <laughs> just be so exceptionally talented that you know, somebody decided to sponsor me and neither of those things were going to happen. So I just, at the end, um, I started looking around for, okay, what, what can I do connected to horses? Ended up working in a, a race course um, at, on the, the corporate side, actually, um, of the, the management running a race course um, as an assistant manager, kind of lowest rung of that um, for a while. But then was made redundant when my race course merged with another one and they merged staff. And so, again, I was sort of floating around, okay, well, well, now what do I do? I don't really know what I want to do with my life, but I'd quite like to go off and see different places. Um, I traveled a lot in Europe as a kid, but I'd never been outside Europe. Um, and I, I was at that stage, I was getting a little desperate for money and applying to anything and everything that I was vaguely qualified for, just thinking, okay, just need something to keep me going. And one of those things was uh, a job teaching English in Japan. I saw the advertisement in the newspaper, went, yep, okay, apply for that. And I just got in from riding one morning and, and got this call saying, so tell us, why why do you want to go to Japan? And I thought, well, Japan, what job was that? Again? <laughs> Quickly think about, ah, uh, come up with a cultural experience, da, da, da. But I really hadn't thought very deeply about it. I was just, you know, 22 years old. I, I was not sure where I was going, what I was doing, and uh, I was just open to anything. So I ended up um, signing a one-year contract to come here and teach and all mm -hmm. that. Why not? Go for it. 
I'm single. I have no ties. I can do this. Um, and I do remember coming in, like the plane coming in to land at Narita after a long flight, just going, what am I doing? <laughs> I don't know how to teach English. <laughs> I don't know anything about this country. I only know that, you know, they eat raw fish and I don't like raw fish. So what am I going to do? Um, but, yeah, it, it's that, that's how I ended up here. And that was 1998. So 22. That was exactly the Nagano Winter Olympics year. Right. It was. It was. It yeah. was I was in Nagano. <laughs> ah, yeah. Yes. Oh, Maybe that's so I'd heard of Japan and watched <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, the Olympics were on. Nagano was, the, the, you know, very much, uh, yeah, it was a very big production, of course, the Winter the Winter Olympics. But I think it's also so fascinating. <laughs> I mean, I've come to the JET program myself, but not for the English teaching position, but for the coordinator for international relations position where yeah. you have to speak and read Japanese before you go into a government office. Mm-hmm. And I always thought it was such a fascinating, if a bit horrifying, that we were having like 5,000 young, you know, grad university graduates to come across and teach English to the junior and senior high when they had zero like teaching training, right? Zero yeah. teacher training. You just needed to have a degree in something yeah. to be eligible to come into the JET program for that role. And often for a lot of the teaching positions, it's like, are you a mother? Do you speak Do you speak English as a mother tongue? Yep. Okay. Tick a box. Okay. Yes. Can you teach? <laughs> qualify to teach English? Yeah. I would never, like, that's really hard to all of a sudden try and teach something that you've learned over the years by socialization in a very natural right. process, an organic process that you've never actually been taught it officially. It's exactly. just organically I remember trying to absorbed. explain grammar points thinking, I have no idea why we say it this way and not that way. I, I'd never thought about it. We just do. And it was it was really a very humbling experience and, and also terrifying at the same time, but you learn a lot about your own language that you didn't already yeah. know. Yes. Right? Um, they, do, they do say that you have to actually teach something to really master it as a doer. Of, mm-hmm. of, even if you think you do it really well until you actually have to break it down and teach it to somebody, you don't actually know it as well as you thought you did. So I guess that's yeah. maybe improved your English oh, skills true. throughout the Yes, throughout the road. yes, maybe it did. Maybe it did. And how long did you stay in this role with the one-year contract? And then what happened? So so I did one year with that company. Um, and what I discovered in that one year was that I, I absolutely was not cut out to be an English teacher. It was really not my thing, explaining grammar points. Um, but I really enjoyed the, the, the interaction with the people, being in that kind of facilitator-type role. Um, and also, I just I really enjoyed living here in Japan. I, I met a great bunch of people. I you know several of them are still really close friends now from that first year and that first um, you know experience working together. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, I, I want to stay in Japan, but I don't necessarily want to do that. So I did take one after the end of that contract in order to get my visa. I, I took um, one more teaching job to get me started. But then I started to, as I was doing that, and that was in Saitama, um, started doing uh, the corporate training a little bit. So sort of going back to that very short stint again, it was, I really didn't have a lot of experience, but, you know, in the the corporate world in the UK, that the little I had bringing that. So uh, to do a different kind of, so it wasn't a kaiwa anymore. It wasn't English conversation. It was looking at, okay, going into companies and, then it suddenly got interesting for me because although I was going there sort of technically to, to teach pr- 
presentation skills or, um, you know, effective communication, team communication or whatever it was. Um, what often ended up happening is that, you know, you were looking at the the mindset and stuff more than the language. And that began to really, really interest me. So, you know, if somebody's uh, acting this way in a meeting um, and saying this kind of thing, where is that coming from? What are the behaviors driving that? And how is that impacting the dynamics of the group and the atmosphere and the culture of the, the team and the company and things? So that sort of whole mindset and behavior thing began to really intrigue me. And so I started studying more on that um, and uh, sort of taking on more um, work and sort of contracts that were around that and then moved um, to the sort of section of the company that was working specifically on what they called the global mindset programs. And then together with um, a couple of other uh, colleagues, we, we sort of developed a whole new program around that. So we'd move totally away from language, which was a huge relief. We didn't have to explain grammar points anymore. Um, <laughs> actually started digging into, you know, what are our value systems and where do these things come from and how does that play out in a workplace? And, you know, how do we feel about leadership and, and what the expectations of a leader are and what is good or bad leadership and things like this. So that sort of became um, sort of the area that I, I very much focused on, um, first of all, in, in developing the programs and, and delivering them as well, or first of all, delivering, then developing better ones, but then also sort of moving into the, the sort of train the trainer bit. So rolling that out across um, so that other instructors could go and uh, teach. How, how many years were you doing that then? Wait, was it mostly in one company or did um, you have several? So yeah, experience? I joined that company in 2001. And I stayed with them um, for that just couple of years at the beginning, um, because then my husband was transferred to London with his job. So we moved to London um, and I thought that was it. I thought my Japan uh, period was done then. Um, it had been great fun. It had been about uh, five years at that point. And I thought, OK, okay. Well, wonderful experience. And I can take this back and I can use that in London because obviously it's a very multicultural yeah. hub. You know, the the. the uh, global mindset and skills, um, you know, was also very necessary there. So I managed to work um, in a, a small um, company in London, actually doing corporate training around that as well, which was great. Um, and then I became a mom uh, for the first time. <laughs> in momentous occasions. Form. <laughs> oh, my God. Exactly. So that sort of adds another whole level of... Um, complexity and intrigue yeah. to life. So. <laughs> intrigue. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> intrigue. Constantly <laughs> discovering. And again, it sort of goes back to, to questioning values and things and, and where are they and what values do I want to, you know, mm. impart to my my children and, and thinking about how we communicate with them as well. So I was really fascinated by, you know, watching her progress with um, language growing up and, and how, yeah, I, I, there were a lot of these kids' programs that are all sort of make funny noises like Teletubbies or whatever it is, but they they don't actually speak real words. And I remember a lot of other kids and their parents saying, oh, this is wonderful. We just plant them in front of this and they can sit and be mesmerized for ages. And I thought, where's the value in that? I really, what if I just spoke to her like a, a, a normal, intelligent human being and didn't use baby language? How would that work? So I've never ever used that sort of baby language there, and and her speech seemed to 
develop very quickly and pretty articulate for a little person and now a bit of a smart ass, but so maybe it's backfiring. <laughs> I hear your pain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, but yeah, yeah, then it, it brings in you know different angles as well. It makes makes you think more about okay, how do we communicate and what are the dynamics between parent as I am, you know, it, it's a kind of a leadership role in a way. And there's a wonderful very book much I'm reading at the moment called Mothers as Leaders by Yes. Deliana. Deliana. I don't want to get we saw her speak at the WIM conference. Exactly. That's where she first launched. Yep. Yeah. So exciting to see her journey too. Yes. Shout out to Steliana. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Love your book. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it, it sort of all of these things have built out. And then we came back to Japan in, in 2000 and nine and again as I said I, I thought that bit was over and it wasn't part of the plan but then the whole Lehman shock thing happened and all of a sudden the you know the job that my husband was hoping to do in the UK was gone there were no jobs oh, wow. um so we came back to Japan with his company here and I went back to my old company thankfully to to Al. um but at that point I was back as a mother so it's like okay well I can't right. go and do you know a week-long intensive deep dive and I can't do like early starts and late finishes when I've got Hoi Gwen runs to do and things so yeah. um so I went into the office side then and moved more into the the kind of management role um mm. and and working on sort of more with the client as the in between the client and the facilitator so understanding the client needs right. working out what they needed in terms of you know a program and then creating that sometimes or pulling together from other pieces and then making, you know, briefing uh, or training instructors, depending on the needs and, and rolling that out. So, so it was, yeah, very interesting now to sort of, I have a much clearer view of how you were like in the business initially as the trainer and the facilitator, and then you were able to be working on the business, yeah. on the business side and really learn that those angles and so it makes so much more sense to me now that then you had all of these, this breadth of, of you know, skill development and sort of perspective on the full ecosystem, perhaps, mm. of what it would look like to then yep. launch something of your own. So I would love to segue then how you decided at some point mm-hmm. that, you know, hey, I should just build my own company and do my own offerings of my own trainings that that I would want to lead. And what what spurred yeah. that? that desire and adventure to pivot out mm-hmm. of a corporate role and to be, you know, in this new journey as a, as an entrepreneur. Okay. So I suppose there were two things really that influenced it or perhaps three. So one, one was around lifestyle because I was commuting an hour and a half each way into Tokyo. So it was literally a case of drop my daughter at the Hoikuen the second the gates open and literally they watch the clock. If you drop before, 7.30, it'd be like, no, 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 it's too early. So wait, okay, 7.30, in the gates, go, see you later, vomit into Tokyo, hope the so train will arrive, sweating, punch my card in, um, then sit down, and then the reverse rush back the other way. And that, I mean, three hours of your day every day doing that. And then if she was sick or anything, there's that whole, oh, my God, it's going to take me an hour and a half to get back yeah. and home. Can I just drop it? Have I got this meeting or that? Um so that that was one factor. And actually, the, the company was just moving its office, so it was going to be even longer. It was going to be an hour and three quarters commute. Oh, wow. At that point, I thought, <laughs> and I, we had the conversation about could I work from home, and the company wasn't ready to consider that then. Uh, <laughs> this was all pretty 20 hindsight. You need to be in the office to, to, 
to be effective. We don't trust that you're working if we don't see you at your desk with your head down sleeping. We don't trust that you're working, but you can put your head down and sleep in the office. It's like, Um, what? Some people did. Right. I know, which just yeah. astonished me when, yeah. when I was working in City Hall and people would be just, I've worked so hard, I'm so exhausted, I'm going to lie down and have a nap for two yeah. hours in the afternoon. And I'm thinking, yes. don't you feel embarrassed that you're, someone will see you that you're sleeping? And it's like, I'm that tired that that's the signal I'm setting. Yeah. But I'm like, that's ridiculous. But I, you don't trust me to go do my work from home yeah. and that I'm going to go off and like, I don't know have a picnic instead of doing my work because you can't see me at my desk. It's so paternalistic, right? Yeah. yeah. And you sort of think of all the people to not need a paternalist oversight. I mean, mothers, come on, mothers have to be so organized, right? Like, as you say, it's a leadership role yeah. and fathering too. Fathering too yeah. is a leadership role when seen in that light and the men yeah. who do that and bring that seriousness to it absolutely are phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And our, our partners, I think are phenomenal in that way. Yeah. Um, but I mean, come on, of all the people to not really absolutely at all need any paternalistic oversight on how to manage our time and make yeah. sure we're getting our work done. I mean, mothers are multitasking and figuring out so many pieces of the puzzle mm. um, and juggling that, you know, so I'm going to recommend another shout out. Everyone reads Deliana's book, Mothers as Leaders, and um, yeah. post it in the show notes as well. But yeah, absolutely. Just yeah. understanding what a leadership role that is and Fair just enough. in terms of personal ethics how do you want to show up in the world? What are your ethics? What are your, what is your view on how you, you know, treat and speak to your children or discipline them or not discipline them? Like all of those are such core issues about leadership that then you bring into your corporate roles. They're directly transferable skills. They really are. Directly transferable. Yeah. yeah. So, well then to the loss of your company that didn't have the foresight <laughs> to realize that you were such a tremendous leader and they should have honored that and, and figured out a way to let you work remotely so that you could, you know, manage this particular point. Cause I mean, I mean, the other thing we're seeing obviously in the DNI conversations is this is a life cycle issue. This yeah. is not rocket science. We know that there's a certain period when women and men <laughs> will reproduce and have children. Mm. And when the employee is probably going to need some flexibility in their schedule to multitask these elements of caregiving. And they'll need it for elder care as they'll need it if they have a child with a disability. Exactly. This, we know this. Like, why can't, why don't, why has this not been solved by the senior most leadership of every company in 2021? That's what's, that's what baffles me. Yeah. This is yeah. not unknown to us. We, we, we know that there's going to be a moment when women and men will all of a sudden have little appendages that are adorable and that will need to be the focus of their attention, their attention, the most important thing in their lives that only they can care give. And, you know, daycare is one option that helps and helps provide balance. But at the end of the day, when child is sick, it's mother and father and or co-mothers or co-fathers or whoever Mm -hmm. the parenting team is, Mm -hmm. who is the ultimately ethical, responsible person who is going to show up for that child. And we need to support that element in every single corporate philosophy out there. And the fact that we don't support it means that, you know, we're we're in a talent, you know, decline in Japan. We're in a birth, you know, declining birth rates for 20, 30 years now because companies have not reoriented in Japan to be family-friendly, caregiving. It's interesting because I think until COVID, um, you know, there, there was an excuse almost in that, oh, you know, we've never done the working from home thing or the the, the flexible work and, you know, it, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work in corporate Japan. It wouldn't work for, um, I remember speaking to a friend who works in a, a law firm here in Tokyo and he said there was a feeling amongst the, the 
the senior partners that lawyers couldn't possibly do their work from home. And, it, and no, 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 that wouldn't work <laughs> so at all. So strange. Um, and then COVID happened and all right. of a sudden we had to. And I think it's blown that excuse entirely out of Thankfully. Order. I really hope that Thankfully. this is going to give companies, I mean, it's pulled the rug out from under that yes. reasoning, hasn't it? So that fake excuse. An opportunity for... to say, look, we, we've proven that we can work from home and be effective. And yes, there are some roles where, you know, it might be helpful to be in the office sometimes and, and depending on the type of work you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I love getting together with my team at my company to do creative sessions and, and you get really you know so much more done very often in those sessions when you're all together but so much of the work can be done really effectively sometimes more effectively outside Absolutely. so I think now that that has been proven and it's going to force companies to really rethink as you say you know people don't necessarily want to go back to the office five days a week and, you know, from morning to night. And so it, it, they're going to need to rethink if they want those people to come back and if they want new talent to join. So it's a <laughs> silver lining. It is. And I think, I mean, I would love to have you weigh in on just even the value added from a sustainability factor. I mean, I think it's kind of mm-hmm. ridiculous that we've burnt so much time, energy, money, consumption of fuels and electricity schlepping people from one end of the country or one end of Tokyo to the other end just so that they can all show up and do FaceTime in a given, you know, office when realistically having that be really strategically only used for the creative meetings, the times when really we're going to do, or the, you know, the team building meetings where we're building our vision together and people need to discuss actively and have a deliberative dynamic Mm -hmm. and participatory exchange in person and build trust together. Those moments you have to be And I would say I would always prefer it to be in person if you can do it in person. But that's not most of the work that we're doing all day long. And so if it's more rationalized that we're thinking a little bit more intentionally about when do we do the hour commute on the train and go an hour away from our families, Mm -hmm. knowing that there could be a major earthquake. Yeah. And how do we get home to our families if there is a major earthquake? Can we be rational about the, the disaster risk elements in Japan? But from a sustainability factor, you work on sustainability leadership and your company, Global Perspectives, uh, has been specializing in this and and leading companies and supporting corporate entities and leaders and thinking critically about this. Mm -hmm. How do you also view, is there a shift now that COVID has forced work from home that companies are also reframing sustainability and how they think about that? I think it's, it's highlighting an area that people didn't necessarily think of as being connected to sustainability. Right. Um, you know, I think very often, particularly when, you know, we, we always talk about sustainability transformation as a journey, right? So it starts at the beginning when people have zero awareness or, um, you know, understanding of what, what is the connection to ourselves, to our work, our companies and so on, through to the other end where it's at the, you know, up front and center in everything they do. And if you look along that continuum, then I think, you know, depending where the company is, they they often jump to, okay, sustainability equals environment. And they're like, yes, that's a massively important part of it. But you've got the planet, but you've also got people. And social issues are an equally important part of sustainability. That's why when you look at the SDGs, you know, many of those are around social people issues. Um, you've got poverty, you've got equality, um, you know, decent work and things like this. Um, 
so I, I think up until COVID happened, the, the main focus, perhaps rightfully so, had been on climate crisis. You know, it is a massive issue that we need to deal with or we're not going to be here much longer as a species. So that's important. But it's also surfaced things like mental health, things like inequalities and access to, you know, some schools were able to turn around and, and go online in a day or two. Others, it's like, okay, well, we don't, the kids don't have access to, to the technology they need and, and that nobody knows how to use it. And actually they don't have Wi-Fi links. So we can't do this. And and if people are working from home, but they live in a tiny space with their kids and they're having to sit on the floor. I mean, one one of our clients was telling us that all their Xinyu Shine, they they sort of bring in um like uh, sort of two, three hundred new recruits every year, um, sort of new graduates. Um, and usually they all come into the office for their training and they have their desk and you know they, they go through all of that sort of onboarding process. And instead they had to send out computers to all these um you know new employees living wherever they were and a lot of them they've just finished being students right they're living in a tiny one room place <laughs> they, they, they don't even have a desk or anything they were sitting working on the floor with their laptop on their on their lap um and then you're into back problems and this that and the other and you can't there's no privacy if they've got you know a boyfriend or girlfriend they're in the background also trying to work and things it really highlighted, I think, a lot of issues that are absolutely fundamentally part of sustainability, but people hadn't really connected before. And I think that's been very positive because it's opening up that conversation now in the companies that we're working with. They're saying, okay, yes, on the environment side, we need to be doing this, this, this. Um, and actually having people not flying all around the world every five minutes or commuting in and out of Tokyo every five minutes that's helping the carbon footprint. Great. That's a good start. But also on the people side, what are we doing around, you know, mental health? What are we doing about um, ensuring that our people are supported um, in their, their family, their personal life, so they're able to, to do the work that we are asking them to do? So I, yeah, it's, it's surfaced a lot, I think. And I think it's, it's been a huge learning moment for Japan to, I think, have to acknowledge the diversity of needs mm -hmm. of the employee base that up until now, I think there's sort of been a corporate warrior model that you're supposed to just be emulating and brought into and socialized into emulating long working hours, you know, hierarchy, top down, you sort of wait and learn and see what other people are doing. And you learn from observation a lot, but you don't really say you're you know, speak your piece or your mind or your opinion, mm -hmm. you, you wait um, until you have a little bit more knowledge, but it's like, how long do you have to wait before your ideas can contribute to the company? Do you have to be uh, a manager before you really can have a say? Or, you know, how do you, how do we carve out space, not only for the needs, but the diversities and the different, like you say, living styles, yeah. uh, family, family dynamics are all so different. Um, yeah, the living space dynamic and just sheer space of, you know, Tokyo is really expensive. So tiny apartments, not conceived with the idea of, you know, the two parents are going to be now working from home side by side in a one bedroom mm -hmm. and the children are there playing too. And so some, you know, people I've heard who are like in the, in the washroom sitting there with the door locked closed yeah. to get a little bit of privacy and quiet on a Zoom call. 
because uh, that is the only opportunity to really not be interrupted by children yeah. or someone or the noise. And, and mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think it's really shaking things up in a really positive way. Um, I'd love for you to just give us maybe, you know, could we hear from you for two more minutes or three more minutes about what Global Perspectives is leading in terms of your vision mm -hmm. and where you want Japan or, or, or this whole era, I guess, not just limited to Japan, but to shift mm -hmm and move the dial on sustainability. Okay. So we are we specialize in the the people side of sustainability transformation because as we you know we we started uh, the company 6 years ago now and um we started off in the the organizational change space and, and leadership development space sort of looking at you know how do leaders influence and lead the organizational culture um, and to create a more inclusive space there. Um, but because both my business partner, Gavin, and I have sort of a very strong personal interest in sustainability and natural world and stuff, particularly, um, we, we began to realize that this was something that we, we could really help with. We could bring that personal sort of passion and knowledge and interest together with our expertise in the leadership development and organizational change because companies are struggling with this side of it. There are a lot of um, companies out there who work on the, the process side of sustainability transformation. So once a company decides, okay, that you know, this is something we need to, to take seriously, we want to be more sustainable, whether that comes from you know, investor pressure or governmental regulation pressure from outside or you know, simply within the company saying, actually, you know, we want to attract better talent. So we need to actually step up and do something and, and have a more positive impact on the world. Um, wherever that's coming from, um, there are two sides to the transformation. There's the process side, you need the strategies, you need the policies, you need the, the systems to deal with that. You need to be measuring things and, and have the right you know reporting systems in place and whatever. Um, so that that's the process side of it. But what is often less less importance is often put on the, the people side of that transformation. But actually, when you look at it, companies are just large groups of people. And if you want these new strategies to work, and if you want people to change you know, their behaviors in their everyday work so that you can meet these goals you're setting as a company, they need to understand why are we doing this as a company? How does it connect to, to me and the work I do every day? You know, If I'm working in procurement or if I'm working in marketing or if I'm working in you know sales or finance whatever it is it's connected but people often don't see that so that you know they'll just be told from the top okay oh now we're doing this we have a zero carbon goal and we're going to be zero carbon by this date and and there's you know and the process side there may be goals and targets but there's often very little support on the people side so that people know intellectually they understand why this is important and what they need to do but they also need to be emotionally engaged with it and understand why for me why for our company why is this important um and how do i need to shift my behavior and my thinking so that's that's the side we work on helping align the people the organizational culture with the strategies but also um building the leadership capability within the company to make that happen like I feel like global perspectives is just sustainability leadership what enjoy is doing for the DEI yeah. leadership space right? right like we have different sectors but similar challenges on mm -hmm. 
how do you build out legacy? Like, how do you build leadership around DEI from the top and all levels there below for the leadership? But then also, how do you retrofit the processes and the policies that can yeah. sustain, right? That yeah, <clears throat> that will make the sustainable uh, change behavior uh, be incentivized in the ways that you can then measure and track right. and be held, held accountable internally. So it's it's very exciting to see all that you're building uh, around sustainability leadership and. Um, Certainly, I've enjoyed watching and hearing you talk about it over many years about what you're building and what the impacts are. So wishing you every success in the next six years of your, your company and building with Gavin. And um, if you have a one small takeaway learning point message or hope or something you wanted to leave the listeners as our close off message, what with that? So I think the the legacy GP as a company, and and I would really like to leave, is one of um, ecosystem thinking. We hear a lot of talk of systems thinking, um, and that's incredibly important. But to me, systems still feels mechanical, and it's leaving out the the human side of this. Um, and going back to my sort of biology roots there, and and you know, growing up in the middle of you know nature. It, you really recognize how deeply interconnected and interdependent our systems are. So if we can start to think of our, ourselves, individuals, as leaders, as organizations, as active players in an ecosystem globally, you know, you, you can zoom right out and, you know, to, to mm-hmm. look at earth and then zoom back right back in again to find yourself and your company. as you're in my head. Exactly. <laughs> you do that and you realize there are no borders in, you know, the, the ocean or the, the you know, yes, there are artificial borders that we've placed on as a society between countries, but actually the land, you know, the other things, those things, there are no borders. And if we can understand that and understand that, as active players, everything we do impacts to some extent, either directly or indirectly, on the the people and the planet that we're part of, the system, the ecosystem we're part of. And in return, we are, you know, impacted as well. So if we can understand that ecosystem, how it works, and that impact relationship both ways, yeah. then I think we can begin to, to find that the intrinsic motivation and the empathy for that so and to and that is a very very powerful motivator absolutely i could not agree more uh, i speak in my language <laughs> i love i mean the challenge is the nation state has been so superficially brought in as the boundary and then multinationals kind of violate that as well by being everywhere yeah and then we don't have a global governance system beyond the UN, and it's not really got a compliance mechanism that's effective. So mm-hmm. we have this ecosystem, but we don't have the, the governance right. at the ecosystem level to help us think like with like a hive mind kind of a yeah. perspective on, you know, if you pee in one part of the pool, you're peeing in all parts of the pool. Can we yeah. please not, can we think about that just for a little bit? And, you know, if there's a microaggression in one part of the world, or if there's colonization in one yeah. part of the world, or if women are subjugated in denigrated in one part of the world, it all comes back and depresses and hurts the whole ecosystem of our planet and of our, of our, our relationships yeah. with one another in a very direct way. And I couldn't agree more that helping, how do we help share that perspective to help people zoom out a bit more and see the interdependence? Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause you're right. And absolutely. 
I think is the key to that, that empathy yes. and the motive, then feeling motivated that you want to be a part of, do you want to be part of the problem or do you want to be part of the solution? Right. That, that's and, the and shift, that, right? It's seeing it from an obligation that you've been told you need to change, you do this to, to here's an opportunity actually. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah. a, a massive mindset shift. It really is. It is. It really is. Well, I encourage that full forward in terms of we needing more of that. So more global perspectives. Yay. Um, thank you for sharing your thoughts today on this live stream. It's been so lovely to host you today. And um, so many learnings for the listeners who are tuning in from all parts of the world. We all tend to have people from United States, Canada, sometimes from Europe, different places. So it's very interesting to see what comments that come in. And I'm sure this will stimulate a lot of comments as well. Um, I wanted to uh, just close on just giving a quick shout out to the team, the Enjoy team that helps put this together. And in the background, my little ecosystem uh, for the Enjoy ecosystem of putting this all together and all of the zones of genius from so many individuals who really is making this possible for us to deliver every week. Uh, next week, we will be sharing an actual, a very special interview uh, that was recorded in Tokyo at Legacy Lounge, uh, one of our partners with Legacy Foundation. And um, it will be featuring Akiko Domoto. She's a former journalist, a former parliamentarian, a former party leader, a former governor of Chiba, um, and also the current president of the Japan Women's Network for Disaster Risk Governance and a longtime research collaborator with me and my, my research in the last uh, eight, nine years on Tohoku and also just a dear mentor. So on that note, thank you everyone for joining. Thank you, Toba, for joining today. This was lovely. Imagine a world without prejudice, bullying, or fear. Imagine a world where our individuality is respected by all our peers. Inclusion and equity are more than words or just a ploy. They are workplaces rich with diversity, creating worlds we all enjoy. Imagine a better world where we all can live free and play where the spirit of teamwork and solidarity give hope and light the way. Good business isn't just profits or pushing for sales. Good business must strive to be just as it scales. Good business is planting a seed in a visionary trail to foster an environment where diverse abilities prevail. Let's build that new world in solidarity. Diversity rocks innovation. Let's build solutions for equality to bring hope and transformation. Let's honor co-creation, honor individuality, with a vision for togetherness beyond screens and virtual reality. All it takes is a little to change the world a lot. Money comes and goes, but legacy isn't forgotten.